Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. So it is, at, we're, I hope where you are is as lovely as it is here in Atlanta, Georgia, because it is really beautiful today. A great day to, uh, to hang out and to enjoy Hashem's beautiful universe. All right, so the topic today is fire, air, water, and earth. Okay, those are not four topics. It's one topic. Those are the four elements, which we'll speak about in a moment. But first, wow. Yes. Oh, maybe not. Not sure if she's here for this or for something else. Adina Malka. Live. Live and local. How's it? Upstairs in the show. Well, good to see you. On the way, you can grab, I thought I thought the thing they all said food upstairs. All right, so, uh, by, by the way, you can say hi to the camera also, because, you know, we usually see you through the Zoom. Yeah, why not? Like, this is my do, cameo. Do a little cameo. Yeah, and playing Adina Malka. Adina Malka. <laughs> hi, this is my cameo appearance. How are you, everybody? It's great to see you. Bye. Good. You look exactly like yourself. <laughs> all right. Um, okay, so I want to speak about uh, two things. First of all, to mention, as always, thank you very much, Dr. Maxi, for sponsoring this season of this year of Kabbalah and Coffee in honor of your mom. May your mom's memory be for a blessing. So today I want to speak about existence. But more precisely, what, what did this look like before this was here? You with me on this? This is kind of like a question that almost is too difficult to ponder. You know, we believe, the Torah tells us that God created the world. In the beginning, God created, it's heaven and earth. God created the world. So what existed before creation? Valid question, right? What existed before? So we know what exists once God creates, this is what we got. This is, this is this. Us and the stuff around us and our consciousness, awareness, time, space, all that stuff. But what existed before? It's a very difficult question to answer because how do you, you know, anything that you and I can imagine of what the before looks like is going to be framed through the lens of what exists now. In other words, we're going to use our current frame of reference to then try to conjure up an image or, uh, uh, you know, think of a, you know, what that reality would have looked like before this exists, but using post-existence ideas. So I think that some of us, you know, when, when you hear me ask that question, so what existed before, what did it look like before? So maybe some of what you picture in your mind, I don't, I'm not trying to implant any, any images, but you know, sometimes you, a person might think, might picture darkness, just darkness. And, you know, blackness everywhere. Just imagine like outer space or whatever it is and just like nothingness. But that's also something, right? The concept of dark is still something. I mean, it's not light, but it's still dark. Right? This is the God created light. And there was, um, what does it say? God created day and God created night, which means that even night, even darkness is a creation. So, that can't, so the question is, what's before creation? What does that look like? So you can't, 
It's not valid, it's not fair to use something of the construct of post-creation and say, well, it's probably the emptiest version of creation that we know probably existed before creation, because it's still a creation. So all of this, my, my point is that we have a very difficult time understanding what exactly pre-creation reality looks like. And we have a very difficult time understanding this because there's really no way that we can wrap our heads around it. Because how can you conjure up, how can you imagine, how can you picture something that is completely outside your realm of picturing? I mean, even when we think of, this is just giving a random example, even when we think of life on other planets, right? Like what would, you know, alien life look like? Well, we've come up with a lot of creative things, but it's all inside a certain box. It's all, it's all, all of these images that we have of like, aliens and Martians and whatever it is, they're all based on stuff that we've seen, stuff that we know, and we just make it look a little bit, a little bit crazier, right? A little bit, I find it interesting, you know, just again, to give another random example, and just stay with me on my examples, we're going to eventually get back before creation, don't worry. But another example that I've thought of recently is they're coming out, all the car manufacturers are coming out with electric cars, it's, which, and understandably, right? Electric cars is like, that's the future or even the present. So that's all the car manufacturers, like from the classics, you know, Toyota, Honda, to the, you know, the fancy, like the Lamborghinis or whatever, I think maybe, I think Lamborghini. Anyway, there are, everyone's coming out with, um, with electric versions of the car. Even, um, what was it, Dodge, the F-150? Was that, is that Ford? Sorry, my bad, Ford F-150. Clearly, I don't own a truck. But anyway, Ford F-150, right? Even they now have an electric version that's coming out soon, right? So everyone comes up with, with electric versions. And what's, what I find fascinating is that for whatever reason, there's this almost um, this understanding, not spoken, not agreed upon behind closed doors, but this understanding across the board that if you're making an electric version of a vehicle or making an electric vehicle, it's got to look a little bit more futuristic. You just have to make it look more, more futuristic. Look like it's coming out of, uh, you know, a little, like, slight science fiction movie. So whether it's um, Elon Musk, Tesla's um, Cybertruck, which looks like straight at, I can't even describe it, like basically a triangle on wheels, or whether it's a, um, uh, just don't throw a, a brick, a, a rock at the window. <laughs> if you saw his the press conference, you know what I'm talking about. Um, or whether it's um, even that Ford F-150 that has kind of conventional looking, but has enough winks that speak to, a, to an all-electric future. I'm not just talking about features, but even talking about the aesthetic, talking about the look. My point is that even as we're imagining a future, an all-electric vehicle future, we're still taking um, design nods from the present, because all of this is just to bring another example of how stuck we get in the status quo or in what we know, and it's really hard to get out of that and to really start with a blank slate. That's for cars. That's for aliens and Martians, right? I mean, we're stuck with what we know, and we're like, okay, well, let's just make them green. Green beings. Ah, now it's really out there. All right, is it really out there? Or we just like, kind of just ex took what, what's here and just, you know, with a different color palette, you know, like with a little, some antennas like we borrowed from, from nature. Like all alien representations are like humanoid, like two 
two arms, two legs. Right, they're hum- that's exactly my point. They're humanoids or they're something akin. We're still borrowing cues from our nature, our reality. You know, maybe combining a few things together, throw in a different color palette, put a little shine on it, call it an alien. And now, ooh, look at that. That's, whoa, that's a crazy looking thing. Is it really? It's not really crazy looking. It's like, I mean, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to bump into it on a dark, in a dark alley, but it's not, it's not like, you know, totally out there. Because there are limitations of the human mind. And the limitations are we can't. It's just impossible. And, and, and I, I hate to, you know, unequivocally state something like without any reservation, but I mean, I've, maybe I'll walk it back a little bit. I, I don't think it's possible for the human mind to imagine, hey, Sandrine, good morning, to imagine something that is completely out of our realm of existence. Because how would you even imagine something that you've never seen, experienced? The shiny part is the scary part. Yes, that is true. (laughs) Until the shiny part, it was okay. It was manageable. Now it's shiny. Now I'm running for the hills. Definitely do not want to be, you know when the, uh, the aliens come with the spaceship and then they like shine the light? And then you're transported up the light. I think that's also the scary part. I'm, I'm going to say that that's also the, the frightening piece of it. But anyway, here's my point. Because I, I want to make sure that the, 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 the core idea is, is, is focused on. And the core idea here is that we have inherent limitations that are born of our reality. Our reality is so strong and so present that we cannot imagine something outside of that reality. We cannot imagine a reality that is somehow, you know, radically different. And when I say radically different, I don't just mean radically the way, you know, marketers use the word radically. Oh, come, this is radically different. I mean, like, truly radically different. We can't imagine. So getting back to the creation, getting back to the creation narrative, you know, God creates the world, and, and God creates the universe, the world, etc., and, and we're here. Okay, great. What did it look like before? What did it look like B.C., before creation? What did it look like? There's no way that we can imagine. But, but, and here is where I'm going with this. There is one element in existence. This is the big idea. There's one element in existence that perhaps can give us a little bit of a clue as to what things looked like before creation. What is it and what and how and why and, and what, what am I talking about? So this is a topic that we've covered before, but it, it may be in a bit of a different angle, but it, it also it, it applies here in a very strong way, as we'll see in our text today as well. And that is the element of fire. Fire is an otherworldly reality. And when I say otherworldly, I mean almost pre-creation reality. Now, you might be thinking, what are you talking about, pre-creation? Literally, fire is of this world, right? We cook with fire. We create bonfires. We, have, we might have in our pockets little, uh, little um, what are they called? Lighters, thank you, very good. Lighters. Lighters that make fire, right? So like, we can produce fire. What do you mean fires of another world? As I've explained many times before, and it's an important thing to know because it's a Kabbalistic, it's a powerful Kabbalistic idea, fire is so radical that it completely defies all created convention. 
Everything in creation expresses existence. Everything in existence essentially declares, I exist, I want to exist, and I want to exist even further. Like, I want to continue to exist in a more existing fashion. That's what existence states. This is true in everything. Everything has grav- gravitational pull, at least on our planet. Everything exists and settles in and, 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 and takes up space. And that's, the, that, that, that's the law of, of existence. However, there's one exception, and that's fire. Fire is the only element that expresses, even as we see it, non-existence. Where do we see this? You take fire, and again, I've shared these examples many times before, but in this context, I think it's very powerful. You take a candle, and you hold it, you know, vertical, straight up, and the flame is pointing up. Take that same candle and turn it sideways. And guess what? That flame is still pointing up. Take the candle and turn it upside down. Flame is now at the bottom. Guess what? That's going to burn your hand because it's burning straight up. The fire goes up. It's the craziest thing. It's the wildest. It doesn't actually make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Because everything is subject to the laws of gravity. You take water in a cup and you start emptying it out. Where does it go? It goes down. It doesn't go up. I mean, I understand if you're on a spaceship somewhere, right, you can pour and things go up or things go to the side. I get it. Fine. It's a different class, right? The Kabbalah of space. We're talking here about this world. This world, you take fire, and no matter what you do to it, no matter how many times you try to like trick it into going somewhere else, it's still very dutifully pointing upwards. And it's a pella, it's a wonder. It's like, what, what's going on here? How is that fire? Why is that fire pointing up, no matter what I do with it? What else in existence does that? I have a mouse here. Yeah, it's pointing up. Now it's to the side, now it's down. I'm not being fought, nothing's fighting. I take water, take liquid, pour it, it's going down, it's not going up. I take a ball, I take an apple, Newton, whatever it is, I drop it, it goes down. What thing in existence do I take and put down and it goes back up? It's mashuga, it doesn't make any sense. Fire is very bizarre. Fire is the one thing in existence that defies in this physical planet that we can utilize, touch, see, etc., experience, that doesn't follow the rules of nature. Doesn't. Furthermore, let's continue. Furthermore, when it comes to fire, fire is bizarre. Fire is also bizarre in the fact that it, as I've said before, it doesn't want to be here. How do I know this? Because fire always destroys what you attach to it until that substance is gone, and then it burns itself out. In other words, it's driven toward non-existence. Its existence is driven toward non-existence or to undoing, unraveling the tethers of its own existence. What other item, what other element on planet Earth undoes itself? It's unbelievable. Everything is all about propagating its species. Everything wants to make itself more present, more known, right? more relevant, more here, more, ex- more existent. Everything wants to be more. And fire doesn't want to be here. Somebody once said that avocados... No, somebody once said that fruit is the greatest scam. 
fruit is this the greatest scam perpetrated on us by the trees. 100% a scam. It's a con. Fruit is a con. Think about it. My front yard, I have a peach tree. You've heard me talk about this before, right? I have a peach tree. By the way, I'm hoping for a good year. It's, it's, I, I don't know what I'm looking for, but it's looking, it's looking good. Huh? No, keep the squirrels away. No, it's the squirrels. Got to keep the squirrels away. Huh? I don't know. I wish I knew more about the, 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 how this works. I saw, here's what I know. I saw like a, a few weeks ago, I saw like little buds coming. Now I looked at it yesterday. Shabbos morning is when I kind of like pay attention to this. I don't know why. It's just the thing that I do. So, so I saw yesterday morning um, a lot of leaves. I, I hope I think that's a good sign. I hope it's not just oh this year you get leaves. <laughs> that would be like very disappointing. Like, I want I want peaches. That's what I want. I'm not demanding peaches. That sounds very demanding. But uh, you know we're, we're we're holding out for the peaches. But it's a scam. Straight up a scam. Listen to this. Listen to this. You ready for the scam? Yeah. Here is why fruit is the ultimate con perpetrated on all of us by the trees, and we still haven't figured it out yet, but I've, I've, just, I've cracked the code, and I'm here to share it with you. Rabbi, You're right. Yeah. I just saw recently, I think it was on Abad.org, but isn't there some kind of special prayer for fruit-bearing trees? Yes. Oh, my gosh. You are so right. In the month of Nisan, so Donna said, is there a special blessing? Yes. On fruit-bearing trees, when they're blossoming and budding, you say a special blessing only this month. So you have to find a fruit-bearing tree. I wonder where there's one. My house, you guys can come over. I researched to see what was in Atlanta. Yes. In Atlanta, you got peaches. My, you can say, we've had people that come over, drive over to our house, and everyone gets out and they say a blessing. There you go. I, I know there are more trees in, in Atlanta that, that, that are fruit-bearing trees. I'm just saying, if you're in the hood and you want to stop by and say a bracha, let me know. We'll, we'll arrange it. I believe that if it's budding, I don't think you actually have to see it. But maybe, I don't know, I would have to look it up. But may, maybe another week or two. Back, back to our story. So fruit is a scam. Why is it a scam? Okay, look. Trees, here's how it works. Trees want to reproduce and have more trees. Trees want to propagate their species. It's the reality. Trees want to beget more trees. That's the premise. Right? The premise is a thing wants to bear more things, new things, wants to continue its species. That, that's its nature. Here's the problem with trees. You ready? What's the problem with trees? problem with trees is that they don't move. Which, you with me on this? Which means that if they drop their seeds, what's going to happen? Another tree is going to grow. The next generation tree is going to grow where? Right in its place. And that means the kids are never leaving the house. Are you with me on this? That means the kids are never leaving the house. The tree can't move. The kids can't move. Nothing can move. Yes? So how do you get the kids to leave the house if you can't move? You take the seed and you put it into a fruit. And the fruit tastes amazing. And now you have animals or people like, oh, this is a great peach. Let me eat it while I walk. Walk, 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 walk. And then I toss it. And guess what? Mazel tov, we have a baby tree. Are you with me on this? Fruit is a scam perpetrated by the trees in order to have other trees not on its toes. Correct? Have I just explained the, this, the, the, the Kabbalah of fruit? I think I have. Fruit is the ultimate example 
Yeah, think of a peach with a pit in the, in the inside, right, which is the seed. So it's the ultimate concept of inside-outside. Kabbalah speaks of this all the time. There's the inner dimension and the outer dimension, right? What's, sometimes we think like inner-outer, mystical ideas, inner-outer. Think of a peach. You have the outer and the inner, right? So what's the tachlis? What's the point? So for the person or the animal or the squirrel, they better not touch my trees this year, right? For, for the person or the animal, what's the point? It's the outside. Who eats the pit? The pit. Pff, discard the pit. For the tree, what's the point? It's the pit. Are you with me on this? The fruit can be the garment, too. The fruit is the garment. Sure, it's the garment, the outside. Yeah, you could... And the inside is what's really relevant. The tree wants to bear more trees. It's part of the nature. Look, science would call it its evolutionary. I don't know what science would actually call it. I don't know the language, but its evolutionary nature would be to propagate its species. Um, Judaism would say Hashem, God, embedded within trees, right? The, um, the nature to continue propagating its species. So whether it's self-induced or whether it's divinely induced, doesn't actually make doesn't actually make a difference but the point is this the point is that there's the fruit on the outside the seed on the inside for the person eating it the main thing is the fruit on the outside for the for the fruit for the tree the main thing is the seed on the inside that's what it wants it's like you know you throw a purim party you have great food and at the party, you read the Megillah. What's the fruit? Sorry, what's the outside? What's the inside? Right? So people come for the socializing and the food and the, and the music. Great. But what's really the core? Sorry for like revealing my hand or our hand. The core is you do a mitzvah. That's the core. Right? To throw a party, there are other parties. You don't have to go to a, a synagogue for a party. The whole point of the outside is for the inside. Right? The whole point is for the inside. The whole point is for the seed. That's where the meaning is. That's what the tachlis, that's what, the, that's what the, the objective is. So when it comes to fruit, are you telling me that a tree bears fruit for kicks? Like, oh, hey, here's what we're going to do, right? So, so uh, we're just going to feed the planet because we're that, that kind-hearted. We're going to feed the planet. I mean, is that, is that, is that the perspective? No. I, on a deeper level, the tree is creating creating a mechanism by which somebody will, will, on their own, move that seed somewhere else. How do you get someone, how do you motivate someone to do you a favor? By making it worth their while. So you're like, I need your help. I want you to take all of these seeds and, and move them around. I'm sorry, I got to run. I'm so sorry, I got to run. I got like, really important. Uh, the tree's like, wait, 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 I have all these seeds. Can you help me? Sorry, got to run. But if the tree packages the seed inside fruit and says, here, it's a giveaway. Enjoy the fruit. Now you willfully, gladly take it. You take a whole bag of them. You eat it. Disperse. Win-win. Are you with me on this? It's a win-win. Yes? Not for, not for Eve. Not for Eve, right. Well, the forbidden fruit is something else. Do not touch. Do not pass go. Do not collect. Right? So that's that. So here's the point. Yeah. How did the head of non-fruit bearing trees exist? I don't know. I don't know. One tree at a time. 
develop this, uh, this, uh, this. I, listen, I'm trying to crack the code here on the scam. So, like, you know, one scam at a time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I don't write. So Don is saying, just for, that, for everybody online, the tree can also take pride in, uh, in creating something beautiful, something tasty, something that benefits others altruistically without, without, without an agenda. Yes. Fine. But I prefer to look at it, look at it as a scam. No, okay. But there's also an element. There's also an element that benefits the tree and benefits its ability to propagate and to, to generate more trees, right? Trees propagate trees. Oh, Yaakov is saying wind. Yeah, other trees that are non-fruit bearing, so the wind helps disperse whatever it needs. No, I meant the purpose of the non-fruit bearing Oh, purpose of non-fruit bearing trees. I don't know. Right. Maybe uh, I haven't thought about it right in this moment. But here's the point. The point is that everything in nature, when you think about it, wants to exist and further its existence, even the trees. There's a whole mechanism in place for the trees to be able to further its existence by packaging the seeds and fruit and something tasty so that we'll go ahead and move it around and do its job and, uh, and in that way keep, keep the species going because everything wants to exist. The one thing that doesn't want to exist is fire. That's why we're talking about this because fire is the anomaly. Fire is not a fruit tree. A fruit tree is I want to exist and I want to exist so much that I'll take my seeds that are my legacy, and I'll package them inside fruit and convince you that you like it, and then you do my work for me and help keep my legacy alive. That is what fruit trees want. Everything in existence wants to be. People, animals, trees, rocks, everything wants to be. The only thing that doesn't want to be is fire. Fire doesn't want to be as we've talked about many, many times. Fire wants to undo itself. Fire wants to unravel the threads of its existence. Fire wants to completely eradicate, completely eradicate all sense of identity. That is the nature of fire, and it's crazy to think about. It's such a wild thing. It's like, what else that if you leave it to its own devices, just causes itself to not exist. Imagine, again, I'm just going to use my mouse. You put it down, and you just watch it self-destruct. What, what thing self-destructs? What thing in existence do you put there, and before you know it, it literally self-destructs? Nothing. What, what self-destructs? Plants, everything grows until it dies and then withers. Fine. But what thing actively self-destructs? Fire. Fire is the only thing. Fire, you put fire down, and what does it do? It burns everything up, and then it burns itself out of existence. It literally is working on destroying everything so that it can be gone, and then it's gone. You put fire on a piece of paper. Yeah, take a piece of paper. Yeah, you light it on fire. Light the corner on fire, and it burns because you forced fire, you struck fire into existence, you forced it. Fire also doesn't come naturally. You have to strike something, it takes force. You had to like force it into existence, and now it's here, now what does it want to do? It wants to be gone. So it burns, whatever it's, touched, it's, whatever it's touching, it burns, it gets rid of, and then it gets... Rabbi, can't we also say it maybe wants to be bigger? Like if we look at the con concept of a forest fire, 
you know how it spreads? Yeah, explain. So a forest fire starts with, let's say, one person, right? Leaves a, you know, doesn't extinguish his cigarette. Right. So one little part starts burning, and then the whole entire right. It goes through. Right, so Donna's saying we find something else with fire that seems to express the opposite, which is a little spark can cause a massive forest fire with millions of acres, God forbid, and houses and homes and, you know, God forbid, being destroyed. One little thing expands. But I would say that actually, to me, that still proves the point. Fire, whatever it touches, it wants to destroy because it wants to be gone. And unfortunately, when fire is touching something and then it touches the next thing, Right, it keeps on it keeps on getting held back by things and it wants to destroy everything so that it can finally be gone. Because at the end of the day, when there's nothing left to burn, it disappears. So which means that its nature is to unravel and to unravel anything else that it touches. It does to everything else. You're saying it's destructive, right? Yes, yeah, it's destru- it's, dis- it's ultimately self-destructive. But the reason for this is not it's not an It's not an ugly or or negative. It's actually, at least from a spiritual perspective, it's actually the most profound element on a spiritual level because it represents... That's true of everything, though. Say it again. That's true of everything. Everything undergoes entropy, which is a degradation down to its basic form. You're saying ultimately, ultimately, it, 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 it degrades. Yes. Yeah, correct. That's true. But I would say fire in its strength, in its peak creates that. In other words, I think, and I don't know what entropy, I, I, I don't know if, um, if I know the term so well, but my, um, it, does that mean like when things die, then they, then they, they uh, decay and, and, and go back to like uh, a base state? Is that kind of what it means? Yeah, I think entropy is decay in nature. That's why when you say like the definition of fire, the weird thing, it's not just self-destructive that it wants to in the end, end itself, but take everything else. Take everything out with it, yeah. Possible. So that was because that's different than. Yeah, there's something, something more like I guess passive about entropy. Yeah. Well, I, I I think I would have to know a little bit more about the definition of entropy, but I would say this: if it's what I if it's if it's what I suspect that it's kind of like when something you know when it dies and it decays and it becomes part of the earth, like that sort of thing. That to me is you know after it's spent its time, it's vibrant time like showing how much it exists then it it it, then it just it just slumps into decay whereas entropy means something goes back to a state of chaos or disorder which in the beginning of voracious is it says the earth was void and without form so right I, i would think that that might be I mean, that would be entropy. That would be synonymous. Yeah, that would sound synonymous. Now, I would say like this. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And I think that what, 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 where fire is different is that fire is actively accelerating this process, even, not even, at the height of its own power, that's what it's trying to do. In other words, the the end result of everything is kind of going back to that state of unraveling. In other words, everything ultimately will unravel. That's, that's I think, what, what, what it sounds like. Everything ultimately, that's, that's the ultimate um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The ultimate, not end, but the ultimate... Culmination. Not destination or whatever it is. The ultimate end is unraveling. The question is, not only how long does it take to get there, but also, like, was it an active process, a passive process? Was it something that it was trying to do or fighting against? Fire is actively trying to, 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 to achieve that, to accelerate that, and to also achieve that in other things. Right? Fire is actively incinerating things to reduce it down to this chaotic, unformed state. So you take a piece of paper that is up, you take a chair. It's a chair, you can sit on a wood chair, a chair with a, it's got form, it's got purpose, it's got utility, and you light it on fire, now it's reduced to ashes. It's nothing. Right? So it's just lost every semblance of, of being, of, of vibrancy. So I think that that is, that is a major part of it. Um, Fire is destructive, yeah. On a spiritual level, let's understand this, that the chaos and the unraveled state is the way things were with God before creation. The, thing, the, the, the notion that things exist, that things have identity and shape and form and utility, all of that is the created reality, which sometimes can stand and, and push up against the divine reality, right? Because... Whose reality is really real? Is it God or us? And so what you have here is thus a spiritual understanding of the the destructive force of fire. So whereas on a very, you know, on a a plain level we would say, yeah, fire is destructive. It's a negative force. On a spiritual level we would say, yes, no one's excusing the the destructiveness of fire. But looked at spiritually, what's it actually doing? It's unraveling the, uh, it's undoing, it's unraveling the, the substance, the form of existence and taking it back almost to a primordial state of unexistence, which is, again, uh, one way to look at it is aligned with that holy space. Could be, yeah. I mean, there's different indication, different symbolisms for the ash of the red heifer, but yeah, there's a, there, there, there is this spiritual in Kabbalah and it was, we'll see today literally inside fire represents an unraveling of existence which touches on a, a, a level of spirituality that exists pre-existence, or that exists pre-existence, that stands pre-existence. So it's almost like fire is a symbol of a reality that precedes defined existence, because fire is not defined. Fire doesn't stay put. Fire doesn't stay in existence. Fire moves and, it, and, it, and it, it, it undoes everything. Fire doesn't want to be. So fire, therefore, is symbolic, as we'll see in a moment, of the world of Atsilut, the highest spiritual world that exists pre-creation. It's a realm, it's a world on the one hand, it's something, but it's not something of the created order. It's not something that wants to be. It's a spiritual, it's a godly realm, and thus the most apt um, analogy is the world of Atzilot is, is fire. Fire and Atzilot are, are combined, which we'll see in a moment. But Yaakov, jump in. Um, <clears throat> so when we have the eternal flame, the Ner Tamid, is that um, trying to fight against uh, the fact that uh, maybe spirit is sometimes overcome by, you know, the, the, the might, the might of the world. And then yeah. um, I also had an insight as to why God... Uh, 
fired up uh, Nadav and Avihu. He got, he became incensed with him. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Let me focus on the first point. So your first point is the Ner Tamid in the synagogue, the eternal flame. The Ner Tamid is, uh, is a symbol. It could be a symbol of the soul, Torah, God, spirituality, right, Judaism, all, and it's really all of the above. But I think what you're getting at is, is the core, which is that, that fire is a very spiritual symbol. Fire is an extremely spiritual symbol. It expresses that which is not tethered to our reality. And so in a very real way, fire is the most appropriate symbol, right? In front of a synagogue, what are you going to put, right? So like, what's the, not that we pray toward it. That's not, we don't pray to symbols. But it's, it's a symbol of the ethereal. It's a symbol of the divine. Shabbat candles. Shabbat candles, right? We light Shabbat candles before Shabbat. It's interesting because Shabbat candles serve a dual function. On the one hand, on a practical level, think about it. Shabbat candles were initiated thousands of years ago. Shabbat candles existed at a time when there were no lights, oh, sorry, when there were no electric, uh, you know, light bulbs, electricity and light bulbs. So this was a way that our sages kind of mandated us that we should enjoy our Shabbat meal because oftentimes people went in darkness at night. If you couldn't afford candles, imagine your whole life you had to have can- if every night if you wanted to see something, you had to have candles. Imagine that never-ending supply. Now we have LED bulbs that last for 10 years. Imagine how many candles you had to go through. It's a lot of candles. It's a lot of candles. So sometimes at night, people wouldn't have candles. They would just go to sleep or whatever it is, or they would eat in the dark. So the sages instituted, it's a rabbinic mitzvah, the sages instituted that we should light. It's a mitzvah to light candles so that we enjoy the meal at least once a week. Guaranteed that you have to enjoy your meal in the light. Candle at dinner. You have to be... Other nights you can choose whether you have candles or not. Other, other nights you can choose whether you're just going to eat in the dark and call it a night. But on Friday night, you have to enjoy Shabbos. To enjoy Shabbos means you've got to light candles. Uh, that's on a f- practical level, right? On a, on a spiritual level, for sure, right? We're coming to the, to the seventh day, to Shabbat, day of rest, a day of spirituality, a day that we're not working the world but resting from the world. What greater symbol is there as we enter that day than to light candles, than to bring fire into existence and and watch it do its thing, which is burn out, ultimately. By the way, one thing you'll only find in Jewish stores are candle, maybe not only, but I think, like these little candle holders, like the foil things, when you burn your candle all the way down, then it shouldn't cause any problems, right? Who else burns candles all the way down? It's unheard of. People light a candle, and an hour or two later, a few hours later, you know, they, uh, they extinguish it. Who lets candles burn all the way down? But for, for Friday night, you don't extinguish. You don't, on Shabbos, you don't extinguish the candles. So you light them before Shabbos. And you let them burn all the way down safely. Um, all right, but back to fire. So there are four elements. There are four major classifications of elements in the natural universe. Now, this was something that the ancient philosophers, both Jewish as well as general uh, philosophers, spoke about. This is something that the mystics spoke about. So it's something that's very pervasive in what I would call ancient thought. Now today, I know, we have a periodic table with many, many more elements. There's been some work among scholars um, to to connect all of the elements that we know, how they fit into the four categories, the four ancient elements, and how they're really, those are major categories, and all the elements that we know are subcategories of those major elements, but I'm not very familiar with that. I know work has been done in that regard, and things have been written in in that space, 
but that's not really, I don't want to take a deep dive on that level. But I, what I do want to talk about are the four original, like the OG four elements of, of the world, of the universe. And what are they? I mentioned them before. I mentioned them in the, the, the subject of the email. Fire, which we talked about. Air, or wind. Ruach. Ruach is like wind. It also means spirit, but it doesn't mean spirit in this case. It means like wind or air. Um, water. And earth. So in Hebrew, it's ash, fire. Ruach, air, wind. Um, mayim, water. And afar, which means earth. Or afar is like earth. Yeah, earth. Dust? No, afar is um, afar. Yes, it could also mean dust. Yes. That was the word I was looking for. Yes. It's earth or dust. Like dust of the earth, it's like, it's, it's the dust, i.e. The, the earth. Yeah. So those are the four elements. What Kabbalah does is, Kabbalah takes these four elements and plots them along the chart of, the, or the map of the four worlds that we've been speaking of the last few weeks. So Kabbalah speaks of, I started this, I think I started the class yesterday, with, uh, sorry, last week with this. It's not like there's God and us. There's a continuum. Creation evolves over four general dimensions. There are, there, there, there are unlimited worlds out there, but generally speaking, creation evolves over four steps, so to speak. And what are the four steps? The four steps are the four worlds. Atzilut, Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya. In English, they're translated typically as the world of emanation, the world of creation, the world of formation, and the world of action. So last week, I spoke about the four worlds, and I explained how each of them, in the human condition, can correspond to a, a, a dimension of creativity. So we have like the initial creative flash, it's like I have an idea that's unformed, and then I kind of you know, make it a little bit more real and more defined, and then I make it take shape, and then I actually actualize it. So any great idea, in order for it to become tangible, like I have an idea for a business, before I open up, before I cut the ribbon or open up my store, you know, opening day, it's going to have to go through many steps along the way of defining, clarifying, and articulating, and actualizing that vision. So all of that happens along steps. The same thing is true with creation. God creates the world, and it, it's an evolutionary process. You see, this is something interesting. So people think that you know, science talks about evolution, and Judaism talks about creation. But what's interesting is that Judaism, Torah, also speaks of evolution on some level. The Ramban, Nachmanides, in his commentary on the Torah, now, now, Nachmanides was a medieval uh, scholar, he wrote commentaries on the, the Torah, on the Talmud. A, a contemporary of Maimonides is Nachmanides, Ramban, not to be confused with Rambam. Anyway, Ramban was also a mystic. And in his commentary on Torah, he, in, he injects mysticism in his commentary. So he'll put a little Kabbalah in the commentary. And amongst the things that he writes on the opening verses of the Torah, he says that God created the world initially in an unformed state. He calls it chomer ayuli, which is unformed matter. God created like this unformed matter and then molded it into shape and then created everything, everything that, um, that we have. Imagine, 
like you start with like unstranded, I don't know if that's a word, unstranded DNA, like the building blocks of existence, like the pro, proteins, proteins, is that what, what, what exists? I don't know. Anyway, whatever exists, whatever the soup amino of acids. amino acids, oh, amino acids, and proteins, and whatever it is, imagine the soup of life, so to speak. Imagine you have just, just the broth before anything is formed. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to translate. It's called chomer hayuli, which means, chomer means matter, but hayuli is, it's actually apparently a Greek term or something, or borrowed from, from Greek. It means unformed, unshaped, unarticulated matter. So it's like this, this primordial soup of potentiality. That's kind of what God, in, this is the Ramban says, that God initially created that and then formed it and shaped it and concretized it to the point that God created everything, which means that it's not like Zap, you have a tree. Zap, you have an animal. Zap, a human. No. First you have the chomra yuli, the unformed matter, the, the unshaped soup, undefined, you know, ingredients. And then it evolves over a series of steps. And he derives this from the verses. And it's a really fascinating piece to look up. Today you can find everything in English, I'm sure. So you can look up Nachmanides on the opening, uh, opening verse or verses of the Torah, and you'll find this comment where he explains this. So the point is, oh, and by the way, he is, and I mentioned before, he was a Kabbalist. And so this, fo- this follows the, the, um, the, 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 uh, the train of thought of the mystics as th- that God creates in an evolutionary way. It's not like God and us. It actually follows a pattern. Now, could God have just created us out of nowhere? Sure. So why does God kind of evolve it into being? One of the answers given, which is fascinating in Kabbalah, one of the Kabbalistic answers given is that so it allows us to work our way back up to the source. Because if it's just God and us and this unbridgeable gap, impossible gap in between that only God can, can jump over, we can jump back. But if God lays out the steps, are you with me on this? Conceptually, rationally, and also practically, if God lays out creation in a, in a ilavaal, cause and effect manner where something, you know, you start with this and then it evolves to that and then that evolves to that and that evolves to that and that evolves to that, then it makes a little bit more sense. Sorry, then it, then, then it allows us the opportunity conceptually and then also practically to be able to somehow climb that ladder to get back to the source and have a relationship with God. Otherwise, it would be an impossible gap. That's what it says. That's what the mystics say. So what's, what's the point over here? The point is that the world of Atzilut, which is the highest of these spiritual worlds, the world of emanation, is a world, but it's not really a world. It's not even the unformed soup mass of the world. The Chomer Hayuli, that the, what, the, what Nachmani speaks about as the, the unformed, but it's the, it's the substance of, the, of, of existence, but it's not yet you know, formed and articulated. That's Bria, that's the second world. Bereish is Bara. Look, in the beginning, God created. He says, what is Bara? Not created cows. God created the soup, soup, that will eventually 
evolve into cows. That's what he says. Now, God guided that process. The process didn't just happen on its own. God guides that process. And how long does it take? Listen, in the Torah, it talks about six days. There are many scientists that talk about how six days or this or that or the other. I'm not weighing into that. But that's what the Torah says. But in Rachmanan, he says that bara, create, is not creating the finished product, but creating the, the building blocks. And then that unfolds from there. So that's the second world. So what, what's the highest world? What's the world of emanation? Pre-building block. You with me on this? It's pre-the building blocks. So then why is it a world? It's the most subtle expression of potentiality that could exist, but before that potential even exists. That make sense? It, how do you even articulate these things, right? It's like impossible to articulate. But it's like if we can conjure up in our minds, and we're limited because we exist in a world of existence. So how do, you, how do we imagine a world prior to existence? Good luck. As I, as I started today's class. But if we can try to imagine before, not only before concrete existence, but even before the basic building blocks, the basic amino acids or whatever, whatever it was, the basic soup of existence even existed, right? That there was also a realm that is complete potentiality. A realm of potential. Because before potential, that's not even a world. What is that? That's just God. The first world is emanation, which means there's something. There's something, but it's not something. Good luck figuring that out, right? What's the third and fourth world? So the third, so yeah, the first world is emanation where you don't even have anything yet. It's like a dream. It's like a vision. It's like a, it's, it, bring it back to last week's class. It's like the creative idea that is not even articulated as a potential idea. It's like you have a creative flash of like, oh, I want to do something or I'm excited about it, but you, you don't even understand that you can't even self-articulate, let alone to someone else. So that's Atzilla. Atzilla is like that first emanation of something, but it's not even something. Then you have Bria, which is now the, the, the soup, so to speak, that can then form, and then Yitzira is the third world. Yitzira is when it takes Tzura. Tzura means form. And then Asiya means action or conc- concretizing. It's, uh, it's making, things, making things real, making things substantive. That's the fourth and final realm of existence. And we exist in that fourth realm, but in the physical side of it. There's two, there's two sides of this fourth world. There is the spiritual world of action or world of concretization, the spiritual side of it, and then there's the, the physical side of it. So we exist the bottom half of the fourth world. That's where, fourth realm, that's where we exist. That's where everything that we know, everything that we can see, all the planets, all the stars, all the, the galaxy, the solar system, everything that we can see and experience and know about, all is the lowest rung of the fourth world. But above that is Yitzira, which is angels and, and other things that take form of the spiritual realities. And then you have Bria, which is like the primordial soup, if you will. And then you have Atzilut, the highest world, which is not even a world. I mean, it's a world. It's like an unworld world. What the mystics do is they... number four? Huh? If Yitzira is number three, what is number four? Asiya. 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 Yeah. Like Ose, like make. So... The mystics take the four elements, fire, air, water, and earth, 
and they plot them along these four worlds. Four worlds, four elements. They line up. Fire corresponds to the highest world, the world of emanation. Just like the world of emanation is, is an unworld world, it's not a world. I mean, we call it a world, but it's not a world like, it's not a creation. Creation is already world two, it starts from world two. So what's world one? Emanation. What is emanation? Not creation. Emanation is still the source. It's like emanating from the source. It's still like part of the source. It's still like the idea in your mind before you even can articulate it to anyone else or yourself. It's like still part of the, still part of the origin. So that's Atzilut. Atzilut corresponds to fire, or fire corresponds to Atzilut. Now I know fire is fire. So fire is the fire that I have right here. I'm, I lit candles, Shabbat candles, and the, I'm looking at the fire. That's Atzilut? No, it's not, it's not the world of Atzilut, but it symbolizes the world of Atzilut. Why does it symbolize? It's all about symbols. Why does it symbolize Atzilut? Because just like Atzilut is the unworld world, in other words, a world that doesn't exist within the constraints of worlds as we typically know them, not even the primordial, not even the primordial soup of existence is, is the definition of this world, Atzilut. It's even higher than that. The same thing is true with fire. Fire is the only element, and that's how we started today's class. Fire is the only element that is all about undoing itself. It's all about non-existence. Just like Atzilut is non-existence. And then you have the next element down is air. Air is not substantive. Air. Now I know when wind is blowing, you feel it. But imagine there's no wind. Imagine there's no wind. You walk outside and you're just, it's a calm day. Right? Is there air around you? Yeah. You feel it? No. Can you touch it? I mean, you can kind of feel it. You can kind of feel it. I'm feeling a little bit resistance. There is, the, there is a little bit of resistance. But it's like, it's like it's invisible. It's like it disappears. It's like it's not, it's, it is, but it's also a little bit not at the same time, right? It is and it's not. It's like air. It's like we don't see it. We see through it. It's like, it's a very weird thing. So the mystics say that's a good analogy or a good symbol for the world of Bria, the second world down. So now it's not Atzilut. Atzilut is the, un, fire undoes itself, Fire unravels. So that's like Atzilut. Atzilut is the world of emanation. That's like, unra- it's, not even, it's not even the stuff that's going to then get more concretized. It's like unraveled. It's, 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 be, it's before the stuff. That's like fire. Air exists. You can feel it. But it's not so substantive. Oh, that's perfect. That's Bria. That's the world, first world of creation. The world of creation is like that. You can feel something. But it's not so tangible. It's not formed yet. It's not, it's not, it hasn't taken shape. Water is the next one down. Water is the third element. Water is like the world of Yitzirah. It takes form. It takes shape. Water also is cool because it takes the shape of whatever vessel you put it in. Right? You put it into a cup. It takes the shape of a cup. Put it into a bowl. A bowl. Put it into a square uh, vase with your flat. It takes the shape of a square. Water is very... So water is substantive, but... It's not, it doesn't exert its own ego and says, this is where I am. You with me on that? It needs a vessel. It's, it's a little, it's, it's fluid. It's flexible, which, which indicates that it's, it hasn't been concretized yet. It's, or it's symbolic of a realm that's not fully baked yet. It's still open to the possibilities. It's still in formation. So again, we have three, so far three of the four elements. Fire is, <laughs> fire, not only is it ethereal, not only is it like air, air is also ethereal. It, it undoes substance. It, undo, it unravels itself and others. So fire is like Atzilut, the world of emanation. 
Then you have Bria, the world, the first world where there's something. It's like air, but it's still undefined, completely undefined. That's air. Then you have Yitzira, the world of formation. Now you have something, and it's formed, or it's being formed, but it's still open, it's still not fully baked. Liquid, perfect, liquid, liquid. And the final thing is earth. Final element is earth. What's earth? Substantive. It's not air. It's not water, which is still fluid. You can feel it, it's substantive. It has, it has form, it has shape, and that's it. It's, it, it's, it's stuck. It's got its thing. That's the earth. So we have earth from below to above, reversing the order. Earth, water, air, fire. Those are the four realms. So again, these are the four elements that the ancient philosophers spoke about. These four elements combine to create everything in existence. So like a book, for example, a book... Right, would have all four elements inside of it somehow. It would have an element of earth, water, air, and fire. And you say, well, hold on, I don't see any, it's not, it's not liquidy, it's not liquidy, I don't feel it. it. It means on some level there's some moisture. I don't know, I don't know exactly how to, how to define it, you know, how the ancient philosophers defined it. But there are these four elements inside of everything in existence. And what that means in Kabbalah is that when you have something in your hand, when you're touching something, when you're looking at something in existence, that I'm noticing the art has been removed. You guys notice that? No. Huh. Okay. But when, you, when you're touching something right in your hands, you are holding on to something that is a product of all four worlds. Does that make sense? This is the end product but it's imprinted with all four dimensions. So yes, the most immediate thing that you're touching is the earth dimension of it, the concrete dimension. But as something that has evolved through all four states, it doesn't lose those prior states of evolution. It doesn't shed those prior definitions. It, it, it retains the memory of those prior states of being. And so when you're holding something in your hand, you're holding a book in your hand, that is concrete. It's of this world. It's concrete. So it's of the earth realm. It also has the water. It also has the air. It also has the fire inside. It's got a little bit of everything because if it's here, it must have undergone all of the other dimensions. Like we said last week. Last week we spoke about these same concepts, but in the focused on creativity and the creative process. Just like we would say that when somebody, you know, speaking of art, when, which is no, no longer here, but when somebody creates a work of art, and it's on, like painting on canvas. You see it. You see the, the work of art. All of the steps of creativity that the person underwent, they're all there. From the initial like, chaos of like, what could it be or how could it be, to the articulation of what it should be, to the, you know, to the, to the motions of everything is there. It's not just a painting. All of the previous steps are somehow captured in this. So everything that exists has all four dimensions in it. Primarily the earth dimension. Unless you're holding water, in which case that's probably the water dimension. So everything's got, a, uh, everything's got definition and everything has its way of being. Okay. Um, this will be a great introduction to help us get into... Yeah. This will be a great introduction to get us into today's reading. So we are up to Discourse 19. Let's pass these out. Okay, take this, please. 
And Donna, thank you very much. There you go. Um, and I'm going to put this up on the screen as well. So, give me a second here. Pull this up. Boom. What we're going to do now in today's text is contrast the highest world, the world of Atzilut, with the lower three worlds, the worlds of Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya. In other words, how do we contrast the world of emanation with the three lower worlds of creation, formation, and action? Or in today's analogy terms, or in the symbol terms, what is the difference between fire and the other three elements of air, water, and earth? And, I, and hopefully by now we've, we understand the distinction is that while everything else exists on, in various levels of existence, fire doesn't want to exist. Fire is all about unexistence. So, in other words, it's almost like the three lower worlds or three lower elements, they're all like evolutions of stuff. Like the original soup of stuff, then it forms and then it concretizes, but it's all stuff. Whereas the highest realm is like the pre, it's like the pre, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very distinct from the other three. The other three exist in a more immediate sense of continuum, whereas the highest realm exists beyond that. Is the flame symbolic that it wants to go back to the source? Absolutely. The flame pointing up indicates that it doesn't want to be, doesn't want to trend downward. It wants to unravel and go back to a place before even the source, pre-source unraveling. All right, so let's jump in. Let's take a look at the text. I'm going to read this. Um, this is, again, Discourse 19. We're still in the middle of chapter one. It's a bit of a long chapter, and so we divide into two Sundays. So let us begin. Atzilut, that's the world of emanation, the highest of the four, is removed from any comparative terms to relate it to the worlds of Bia. That's a very, I would say, awkward translation. But the way I would, um, the way I would translate it is that Atzilut, the world of emanation, is completely, is radically incomparable to the lower three worlds. And now he brings the symbols. In general terms, the four worlds parallel the four elements. Okay, so that's the, the parallel that we've been speaking of this morning, and the reason why is, of course, because it's right here. So four worlds parallel four elements. And what are the four elements? Fire, air, water, and earth, as stated in Eitzchayim. Now, what is Eitzchayim? Eitzchayim is one of the great works of Kabbalah. Eitzchayim was written by, Eitzchayim is based on the teachings of the great Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, and, uh, and that is... And that is, um, and that is this, the, uh, the, the source of, um, of Eitzchayim. Eitzchayim was actually written by his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital. So this is, um, this is stated in Eitzchayim, this parallel between four worlds, right? And four elements, the four worlds of Atzilah, Bria, Yitzir, and Asiya, and the four elements of fire, air, water, and earth, that parallel is stated in Eitzchayim. Let's continue. Atzilut. And now he draws, he actually draws the lines for us. Atzilut corresponds to the element of fire. So the highest world, the highest element. Or the most ethereal world, the most ethereal element. Atzilut is fire. 
as it is written, your God is a consuming fire, comparing God to fire. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Obviously, God is not literally fire, but it means that there is a comparison between fire and the divine. Fire and, there, there is a, the Torah itself, the Bible itself, the five books of Moses themselves are comparing God to a fire, comparing God to the element of fire because, the, because there's, a, there's a concept here. Here we go. Just as fire has no connection with uh, the other elements. What does that mean, no connection with the other elements? I, I said that's how I started today's class. Every other element wants to be. Fire doesn't want to be. So there's no, fire is radically different, not just a little bit different. I mean, every element is different, but fire is radically different than the other elements. Air and water and earth are all about being. Fire, unbeing. Fire is radically different than the other elements. And it has the tendency, number two, tendency of constantly rising, right? So just like fire has these two elements to it, this, the element of fire has these two properties, Atzilot similarly has no common points with the worlds of Biyah. Just like fire is incomparable to, to everything else in existence, the other elements, so too the world of Atzilut is incomparable to the other worlds. Why? Because Atzilut is actual godliness, having no aspect of yesh at all. Yesh means being or existing. Yesh means isness. Atzilut is th that first world of emanation is pure godliness. It doesn't have any identification, self-identification. It doesn't have any sense of being, any sense of, of is or, or taking up space. Atzilut is complete divine, complete godliness. Now, you, again, the obvious question is, so then why is it called a world? Let's just call that God, right? If it's godliness and it's not has no connection to being whatsoever so then why is it one of the worlds of creation how does that make any sense how's it a world okay so he doesn't discuss it here but in other places of uh, in citizen kabbalah it's okay so you have to like you have to parse it a little bit and it's, it's a little bit splitting hairs so it's not it relative to the lower three worlds you would say it's com it's complete godliness it's not but relative to the source it's already the first movement outward it's like that initial flash, like think about it. Think about it in the, getting back to last week's conversation about creativity, right? So, so there's you and your mind, and then there's the idea that's, that's going to be actualized. The first movement is that first flash of intuition, that first flash of insight of, aha, I got something. It's unformed, it's unarticulated, it's undefined, it's unrealized, it's unactualized, obviously, it's... It's just like, it's just an idea, an idea that you don't even know what that idea is. So it doesn't, it's, it, it, there's, there's a non-tangibility of that idea, even for yourself. It's totally unformed, it's totally, un, it's, it's, it's still pure you. But there's still a difference before you had, before you had the flash of, of, of insight to after. Something moved, something changed. Before it was just you, now it's you plus a lightning flash in your, you know, a light bulb in your, in your head. Oh, so there's something. So that's why we call it a world. It's something, but it's not anything like what will unfold from there. So within the, within the four worlds, right, one, two, three, four, what he's essentially saying is that one stands alone, and then you have two, three, four as a group. So you have two groups. You have Atzilut, and then Bria, Yetzirah, and Asiya as the second grouping. So Atzilut is a world because it's something, but it's not something of 
substance or of creation or formation. It's not, it's not anything of this, but it's still something. So that's why it's a world, but it's still way beyond. And it's like fire, or fire is likened to it because fire also is radically different than all of the other elements. Again, everything that I've I tried to do an introduction here, make sure that everything that we discussed is, uh, is right here. And, and I think it is. Rabbi, now, yeah. Rabbi, that, that's really interesting because um, if Atzilut is just the thought of God and Berea and Yitzira and Asiya are just actions of God, then we're really, I mean, you could say we're not separate worlds either. We're all literally part of just God doing things. So we're all kind of creations of God that, you know, just he, he just formed these little actors on the stage and, uh, you know, let them, gave them free will to play themselves out. But we're all really part of God. Yeah, that, so, that is 100%. Yes, that is 100% accurate. Yes. And that's, a, and that's a, like a bit of a mind-bending realization and, and, and an outcome of, of this idea. Yeah, 100%. Let's continue inside because now he gets to the next three worlds. So the first world is like fire, right? The first world, Atzilut, corresponds to fire. Just like fire is radically different and is ethereal and rises and, and, and is not of existence even as it exists, etc. So to Atzilut is, is, is actual godliness, right? The, that's the first parallel. Let's continue. The worlds of Biyah, again, Biyah is an acronym. I probably should have clarified. Bria, Yitzira, Asiya. Those three letters, B-Y-A, Bria, Yitzira, Asiya, the three lower worlds, begin with Bria, right, that's that world, are the first appearance of Yesh. That's the origin, that's the, um, the beginning of isness. The beginning of somethingness is with the world of Bria. Hey, welcome, good to see you. This is indicated by the word, so yeah, again, Yesh means something. Yesh means some form of uh, of, of being, even if it's not what we see here, concrete being, but it's the, the, the origin, even the soup of being. This is indicated by the word bara. Bara means create, right? Bereshit, bara, in the beginning God created, as Ramban. Oh, Ramban, Nachmanis, the aforementioned comments in the verse. Bereshit, bara, in the beginning God created. Right? That's what Nachmanis says. Um, if you look at footnote 340, this is a quote from Ramban. God created all the creations from total nothingness. In the Hebrew language, we do not have a term for creation, ex nihilo, other than bara, created. In other words, the notion of creating something from nothing is only a divine power. No one has ever created something out of nothing. It's impossible. Everything that we create is from something. You reformulate, you, 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 you formulate things out of something. You create, you use chemicals, you use elements, you use something to create something else. So we don't actually create, or I mean, we can call it create, but we don't actually create something out of nothing. Only God did that when he created the original primordial soup of existence. He created that out of what? Nothing. Because if something else existed before that, then that would have been the primordial soup of existence. Are you with me on this? Right, so that initial, the initial... Um, building blocks of existence were created from nothing. They didn't always exist. They created from nothing. That's Bria. That's Bara. That's what God creates. That's the initial origin. That's the initial iteration of, of, of creation is that. And that's really what creation means in the biblical sense. Bara, create, doesn't mean 
You took out wood, you took wood, and you created a chair. That's not called create. Create means you took nothing, and you created the first building blocks of existence. So because of this unbridgeable gap, this is fourth line, second paragraph. Because of this unbridgeable gap between Atsilut and Bria, Atsilut non-being, and Bria the origin of being, Atsilut is utterly removed, in other words, radically distant from Bria. And it goes without saying that Atsilut, the highest world, has no contact. Relativism with the mundane Asiya, with the, with the lowest world. Okay? So, Atsilut, the highest realm, is radically different, radically removed, so to speak, distant from our physical reality. If Atsilut, look, the difference between Atsilut and Bria, Atsilut is a divine realm, right? Nothing exists, nothing even source of the stuff, not, the soup doesn't even exist, right? The amino acids, none, nothing exists, even the spiritual stuff. God exists, but nothing of this created reality. Bria is where it starts to exist. But the difference between Atsilut and Bria is, is almost like an impossible gap. Only God can, can go from one to the other. Can you imagine from the source, from Atsilut, to us, to the concrete? Whoosh. Not the spiritual origins of this stuff. Of this. Of this. Okay. Of this. God's own spirituality exists, but our... It's like human development also, we have the same idea. Like we're first aware of self and then we're aware of others. It's like there's first God and then there's God plus. And that is a radical step. That's a radical step out. So here's the kicker and here's the punchline. We're about to get to it. So he says that if Atsilut, if world one and two have like this immense gap, this immense gulf, can you imagine the difference, the distance between one and four? Even more unbridgeable, even more radical. For this reason, and here we get to the punchline, and it connects with the previous weeks that we've had, uh, that we've been discussing this. For this reason, the beneficence, that means the blessings. Remember Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we got blessings, and it's decided what we're going to get. But it's decided in the world of Atzilut. Ah, which means there's nothing to do with here. The, the blessings that were allotted on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, in the world of Atzilut is radically distant from our pocketbooks, right? For this reason, the beneficence, as it stands in Atzilut, has no vestige of physical form of chesed of the mundane world. It's completely distant, completely radically different than our mundane reality. Rather, an effusion of chesed issues forth to Knesset Yisrael without express condition. And it is divided through the five severities that we've explained the last few weeks for the individual recipients, but it is still, it is all still in a state of spiritual kindness at this stage. Not just spiritual kindness. Atzilut, world of emanation, spiritual kindness. That means not even related to the origins of creation, which is the next world down, Bria. It's still Atzilut. So it's something, but it's not something that's even on the train in this, in this way. And in order for this last paragraph on that page, on page 274, and in order for this supernal chesed, the atzilot chesed, to become energy and material beneficence, in other words, tangible, in terms of children and health and prosperity, like literal gelt, 
literal health, literal nachas, right? How does that happen? It is through the investment of malchut, of atzilut, into biyah. It has to go from atzilut into bria, yitzira, asi, into all of the other worlds. At the end, this is a little parenthetical, at the end of Igarta Kodesh, which is uh, one of the sections of the book of Tanya, in the epistle beginning, Lahavin Masha that's the Hebrew title of that discourse, it states that even on festivals, Chesed of Atzilut is completely invested in Chesed of Bria and vivifies the physical world through passage by way of Chesed of Yitzira and Asiya. This too is properly called investment, for otherwise it cannot affect the physical aspects of this world, which means that even on the holidays, when things are elevated and the consciousness and creation is elevated, on, on, on the festival it's not just a, a celebration. Woo, we're celebrating Passover, the Exodus, oh, it's a party. We eat matzah. No, it's, there's, a, there's an elevated spiritual consciousness that, that happens. It's, everything is elevated. Even in that elevated state, you can't get directly from the source to this world. It doesn't go from Atsila to us because we're elevated. No, it's got to go through all the steps. Even on a holiday, it's got to go through the steps till it becomes concretized, till the chesed, the pure kindness, the blessing becomes materialized. Take a look. Let's continue to 246. On ordinary weekdays, not a festival, not Shabbat, it is by complete investment in Chesed of Yitzir and Asiyah. So on the holidays, it passes through all the realms, but maybe it doesn't get as stuck. But on ordinary weekdays, oh, you better believe it, Chesed, the Chesed of Atzilut, the kindness, the blessing of Atzilut, the highest realm, is invested in Chesed of Yitzir, and then it's invested in Atzilut. It actually makes that, it, it, it travels downward and becomes invested before it goes to the next level down. But it's also through the union of Zun, of Yitzira. Right, it also happens through Zun. Zun is Zah and Malchus, or Zah and Nukva, which means the six um, uh, Midos, the six divine attributes, Chesed through um, Yisod, and the Nun, which is, which is Nukva, refers to Malchut. So it's through the union. In other words, it, it's, uh, these, are, these are a little bit more advanced mystical t- uh, concepts, but the point is that there's an investment, there's an investiture that happens in order for the energy to come down. It literally is enclosed in one level before it goes to the next level. So it, it goes step by step by step. It's a process of moving downward until it reaches our reality. It's, there's an investment. It, it, there's, a, there's a methodical investment. Why? Because for investment in Chesed Yitzira alone is insufficient by itself. Since Zav Yitzira is not yet in any category being a source for the flow of Chesed of Asiya. So the, the point is that in order for the divine kindness to reach our realm, it's got to go through all the steps and it can't skip any of the rungs. It's got to move its way downward. And it, it's like pipes. I used the plumbing example last week. It's got to go through a very elaborate series of pipes and checkpoints. And that means that any point, the more checkpoints you put in, the more pipes you add, the more potential there is for clogs. You with me on this? The more, the longer the process goes, the more possibility there is, not likelihood, but the more possibility there is of things getting stuck along the way. If you have just you know, one to two, it's a little bit easier to ensure that it gets there. But if you have one to two, within two itself, it's got to go through here, and then there, and then there, and then there, and then it goes to three, and then here, there, 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 and then four. Now you're dealing with a lot of checkpoints. And that's the reality, right? Vitality for Asiya could not issue from it, could not issue from a pure state of chesed of, of, of Yitzav Yitzira. Rather, the flow proceeds through Malchut of Yitzira. Let's go through that Malchut, that last level of Yitzira. In the very light of Zav, Yitzira becomes contracted. So, 
Again, Zah and Nukva, these are higher level concepts, but Zah refers to Chesed through Yisod, those six dimensions, and then the Nukva is Malchot of Yitzirah, but it's got to go through all the stages of the, the third world of Yitzirah before it gets to our world. It can't just bypass that and just quickly go through it. It's got to go through all those steps. And in Asiya 2, let's continue the last paragraph. In Asiya 2, which is our realm, there must be the union of Zun, Za and Nukva, which means Chesed through Yesod, and Malchut of Asiya. It's got, it's, got, it's got to go through those steps, all those steps. The primary force for the emergence of a yesh, which means a being and an entity, and a separate matter must be from Malchut kingship, for there's no king without subject. So everything's got to go through Malchut of one level before it gets to the next level, before it steps down to the next realm of existence. Then, and only then, beneficence flows into the physical asiya below. That's, notice he says physical asiya, because there's also a spiritual asiya. As I mentioned before, there's two realms. So only then does it flow into the physical asiya below and to our realm according to the requirements of each day. Through the mid of that day, that means the attribute of that day, of the six boundaries of Biyah, there are six dimensions of Biyah in general. The six dimensions or boundaries are um, north, east, south, west, and up and down. Right, those are six dimensions. You make a, 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 a cube, there's always six dimensions, right? Right, left, front, back, up, down. So biyah, which is marked by time and space, also has six dimensions. These six dimensions are manifest as six days of creation. Six dimensions, six days. Shabbat is outside of the box, so to speak. Anyway, that's a little bit of Kabbalistic geometry. So the six days are the six boundaries. All divisions come from the five severities of Atik. And, and, and so what we've hit today is a lot of pure Kabbalah, which time does not allow me to really break down, but it's nothing radically different. It's just Kabbalistic terminology of, of like articulating the different levels, but it's all the same thing that we've been talking about the last several weeks, and today as well. And that is that we have different, this works by an evolutionary process. Things start above and they fall down below. It starts off as pure emanation, creation, formation, action, spiritual, and then physical. And along the way, the, the divine energy has to step down, step down, step down, step down until it hits here, which means that any, at any point along the process, if the checkpoint, if that clearance is not given, that blessing, that energy remains locked to that spiritual rung and we never feel it. Which is why, as we'll explain, I think we're going to start getting into it next week, a practical application of this, a practical, you know, what, what, what does this mean for us in our lives? Here's what it means. What it means is that we might have been blessed with something and it might not have reached our bank account. I don't mean only bank account, but it might not have reached our physical reality. We might have blessings of health up there that are getting clogged or blocked for whatever reason, which we'll get into, that are getting blocked along the way and not being manifest, not opening up to our reality. So what, what, he's, what he's done is give us, you know, over the last several weeks, sessions, given us a framework of understanding how this works, how the flow works. Once we understand that, we can understand, okay, so now what do we do about it? And that's what we focus on next week. All right, so today, we talked about, to summarize today, we talked about the four elements, fire, air, water, earth. We talked about how they parallel the four worlds, of Atsilut, Berea, Yetzira, and Asiya, emanation, creation, formation, action. We spoke about how, uh, right here at the end, we spoke about how the light and the energy, the divine energy, flows from above to below and through all these points. On holidays, it flows a little bit more smoothly. On weekdays, it literally steps, stops down at every point along the way. 
And in order to proceed, the implication is that it has to be let through or it has to kind of make its way through, which sets up a scenario where not everything that's been allocated to us might reach our physical reality. It might have reached us as we exist also on a spiritual level, kind of like people talk about parallel universes, like in a parallel universe, like, you know, I'm wealthy beyond measure. Sure, in a parallel spiritual reality, we might have all these blessings, like up there, so to speak. But in this reality, right, it might be a bit of a different story. So this is what we're going to talk about as we continue to unfold this idea in chapter 2 of Discourse 19. And we're going to speak about how, um, what happens the six days of the week and how we can ease out those blockages that exist between us and the blessings that have been sent down that path toward us. All coming up next week and in the weeks that follow. So a scheduling note. So first of all, thank you for joining. I appreciate it. Um, hope this has uh, been an invigorating way to start your week on this Sunday morning. Thank you, thank you. Um, a quick scheduling announcement. So next Sunday is the Sunday before Passover. We will have, please God, we will have Kabbalah and coffee. But the following Sunday, which is the holiday, we will not be having Kabbalah and coffee. So we have next week, please God, but not the following week. And the week after that, I don't remember if that's still the holiday or the holiday ends on a Saturday night. I think it ends on a Saturday night, which means that Sunday we could be back to Kabbalah and coffee. But check your local listings for more details on that. And check your email. If you don't get the email, email me so that I can add you to the email list so that you get the email and know what's going on. All right, that's scheduling stuff. Oh, as far as this week, while we're talking about scheduling, tonight we have the Jewish Book Club. Um, the, the book, and even if you haven't read it, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. The, the book is entitled An Unorthodox Match. Very interesting story about a young woman who doesn't grow up in an Orthodox family, who, be, who, who adopts that way of life and now is looking to get married and the, uh, the drama that ensues um, in that story. It's a great, it's a great novel, and uh, we'll be talking about it tonight at 8 p.m. Uh, check the website for more information, and or email me for more information if you want to join, whether in person or online. Tomorrow night is Rosh Chodesh Society. The topic is chesed and kindness. We were speaking about kindness a moment ago, how kindness has to flow from above to below through all these checkpoints. But we also have the opportunity here on earth to create kindness for others, um, whether it's giving or helping, you know, whether it's, it's not only about money, it's about many different forms of giving. So the class, my wife Leah will be teaching the class, it's all about chesed, practical uh, modalities of kindness and their spiritual meanings. So that's Monday night. And we have arcs as well, yes. We have a giveaway of a, of a gift box that can be shared with, with others. Then we have, that's Monday. Tuesday, we have our class, um, the JLI class, that you be the judge. Then Wednesday night, we have um, Passover boot camp. If you want to get ready for the holiday, Wednesday night, 7.30, live or on Zoom, that is what you want to hit. It's a Torah studies class, but it's all about the holidays, so we're calling it Pesach boot camp, Passover boot camp. So join us Wednesday night, 7.30 to 8.30 to get ready for the holiday. It's actually a great class. Not actually, it's a great class. Um, speaks about what it means to be free in our lives and some insights into the actual Haggadah and the Seder that you can share at your own Seders. There is, uh, there, is an there is a Zoom version. Yeah, there is a Zoom version. It's actually on the website. And uh, in person, right, it's a hybrid. In person and online. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of the highlights for this week. Rabbi, what's the text for the uh, 
weekly tour of studies class if you want to order that. Too. It's on Amazon, but I want to, I mean, it's the last session this week of the book. Oh, okay. So we, we'll, we'll have another book that will be for the weeks for starting right after Passover. I mean, you could still get it, but it's going to be only, it's only going to be new for this week. But it's on Amazon. If you want, it, if you want the link, email me, and I'll email you the link to check it out on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Oh, is it also on the, on the, on the website? The book link also? Okay. Check the website, intownjewishacademy.org. Yeah, for all this stuff, check out intownjewishacademy.org, and uh, the Zoom link and the book link may be there. Look under Torah Studies. That's where to find it. Okay. Good? Hope so. I, I know we got a little Kabbalistic at the end. Zun. Zun Nukva. Yichud Zun. Who would sell Overcoming Folly? Where would... Overcoming Folly is either Amazon or the publisher, kahat.com, K-E-H-O-T. They just did a new edition. This is my original edition, but they just did a new edition. Yeah, so it should, it should be there. You should be able to get it. All right. See y'all. Thanks for joining. Have a wonderful week. And I uh, hope everyone's pre-Passover prep is going smooth. All right, take care, everybody. Bye. Enjoy your day. Bye, you too.